Welcome to Sober Sisters Talk. I'm MG. And I'm Elizabeth Pudwell. Welcome. The speaker series happens once a month. This will be part of our weekly Zoom meeting that happens every Friday night. If you would like to be a part of that meeting, you have to be female. And send us an email at SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. If you would like to tell your story, please reach out to SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. We want to have more stories out there in order to help other women. And here's our next speaker. Thanks for listening. Also, we'd love to invite you to a Zoom meeting this Friday night at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you're interested, email SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com and we'll send you the meeting information and password. We hope to see you this Friday. Um, I'm so happy to be here and all these newcomers to our meeting, we're so happy you're here. And tonight is speaker meeting and that means we get to hear one woman tell her story, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. I asked Pamela, I don't know, it was a couple of months ago if she would do it and Pamela's been coming to this meeting at least a year and I just love her honesty and her ability to share and you know I've just gotten to know her just on every Friday night by her showing up and I'm really happy and excited to hear what she's going to share with us tonight so take it away Pamela. Well thank you very much um thank you all for being here this evening um I wanted to um subtitle my talk this evening um give myself a chance um that came to me in a dream for a couple of times give myself a chance and um, i think that's what my year in slaa has been about recovering not only from uh addiction and anorexia but also um recovering a life, giving myself a chance to have a new life. Um, it's no coincidence, really, that this is my first anniversary. September marks the first year of my coming to SLAA. Um, September 27 actually is my anniversary date coming to SLAA. And um, it's one of those situations where if I knew it was going to be this difficult, I probably never would have done it, you know. But I've said that about being a single mother and about, you know, getting back into school as well. So, you know, uh, some things you just have to do. And that's what happened when I entered SLAA. I had to do it. My emotions were out of control. I was out of control. I was sobbing like a maniac all the time, and I was falling apart. And I um, called a friend in another discipline, asked her if she would sponsor me, not knowing that SLAA even existed. Uh, She turned me on to two people, one in California and one in Pittsburgh who might be willing to sponsor me in that program. I was not able to reach the one in California, but I was able to reach Nettie in Pittsburgh. And Nettie had introduced me to getting started in SLAA. And I grabbed every moment I could in that particular uh 
information availability to that information. I listened to the podcast. I bought the literature. I bought the books. I uh, went to the meetings. You know, I did everything I possibly could to quit the sobbing, quit the crying. Um, You know, I come from a home of extremes. Uh, The extremes started in my childhood, way beyond my childhood, you know, back to toddlerhood and even earlier. And I can tell you that when I was dating somebody in, um, oh, can I have a 15 minute warning? I forgot to ask 15, two 15s. Okay. Thanks. Um, I was dating somebody in, uh, my twenties and he said, uh, tell me about your childhood. And uh, I don't remember what I said to him at the time, but I can guarantee you that I never went out with him again. You know, I never wanted to talk about my childhood. Uh, The home that I came from, the extremes were uh, characteristic of my grandparents' behaviors as well as my parents' behaviors. Um, They had been raised in violence as well. And so, you know, that was something that was actually quite natural for them to be violent. And they were violent towards each other, and they were violent towards the women, and they were violent towards me as a child. So that by the time I was in second grade, I already said to myself, there's no way I'm getting married. There is no way. I had uh, seen what the women were like in the home, how they were treated. I was also given the responsibilities of the laundry for a family of five and the grocery shopping for a family of five when I was in second grade. And that was a weekly responsibility until I left the home. Um, There was something, you know, wrong with everybody, and I kind of knew it, but because of the extremes that took place that included uh, people who were, you know, full of hate and full of fear, that transferred to me, and, um, you know, I lived in a lot of fear. I... During my practice of abstinence this year, I have embarked, I suppose, or I have taken on the information, the gifts of knowing that I'm not only anorexic, but I'm an addict. You know, the anorexia came early in childhood. Uh, That was a psychological decision on my part and an emotional decision on my part to stay away from relationships because they were full of bad things. They were not safe. um, And I just didn't want to go down that road. I um, engaged in certain addictions as I got older without realizing that I was doing that. It's no surprise to me that this year, in my period of abstinence, I 
received the diagnosis of, you know, complex PTSD, which I knew that I had, you know, but I thought I licked it. I thought I licked it 20 to 25 years ago when I moved here. And that startle response that you have that wakes you up in the middle of the night when you hear cars driving up into the driveway or when you hear people talking in the street, that stopped. And so I thought, oh, great, you know, I licked it. I don't have PTSD anymore. Well, something activated my trauma last year. And yes, I am okay with PTSD right now because now I know or I have a label for why my head feels like it's going to explode sometimes, you know. And it's not because... You know, I need another something else to get me high or, you know, I'm still crying over my qualifier. It's the PTSD that sometimes still makes me sob as if I were a maniac or double over in the uh, bathroom, you know, as if, you know, I were going to have this severe pain I have the severe pain and it's nice to know that it's what that is and now I have tools with which I can you know deal with it not only am I an anorexic I'm also a fantasy addict because that was practically my only safe place you know I could live out my relationships I could live out my happy life I could live out my safety in my head and one relationship may have lasted 30 seconds because it started, I finished, all in my head, in the same fantasy. And then I could move on. Um, I thought that I was together because I was staying away from relationships and I mistook my anorexia for recovery. I mistook my isolation for safety and I used it to protect myself from getting involved with anybody, any relationship, male or female. I have a unique, I thought, unique quality of disappearing. You know, if anybody got too close, I could disappear. And I wouldn't have to explain myself. I wouldn't have to let anybody get to know me. And I didn't really know myself anyway. I think that in this year of self-discovery, I have had some major breakthroughs. Um, in working the steps, I was granted an opportunity to work in step study almost immediately. And uh, my sponsor and I, we talked about the ninth step, and I thought I had to make all these amends to everybody because I was such a, an addict, you know, I was such a bad person. 
and I did all these things that were wrong, and everything was all my fault. Um, and uh, my sponsor and I decided that it was more important, at least up front, to, to learn how to make amends to myself. And that took a lot of work, and it's still taking a lot of work. Um, to get to know how the patterns of behavior have been have become so deep that I wasn't even aware that they were going on. But the work that I'm doing in SLAA is bringing the deep stuff out. It's bringing the Parts of me that I knew were there, but I did not want to recognize or deal with. And with the help of a qualified therapist, these parts are coming out. I have an anorexic side, and I have the addict. And I've been living my life in self-loathing and self-hate for who I am and for the addictions that I have, which are a few, you know, I've gone through all the programs practically, and I qualify for all the programs practically. I've been um, off the booze for th more than three years, and that was like the last one to go. And once you start thinking about who you really are without, once I started thinking about who I really was without suppressing, without repressing, without using something to level me out, that's where the hard stuff started. I mean, sobriety in SLAA, I like to say sobriety in SLAA is exhausting. It's really mentally and emotionally exhausting for me. And I'd like to also joke that the program doesn't ask much. It just asks you to change everything. And that I need patience and I need time with myself in order to be able to do that. And that's what I'm doing. I'm doing this slowly. I'm taking time with myself and I'm nurturing myself. I had agreed with anything that said anorexia equals self-loathing and self-hatred because that's exactly where I was. I would beat myself up over having these addictions. I would say to myself, what's wrong with you? You know, uh, why, why do you use? Why are you using these things? Uh, you're not a good parent. You're not a good daughter, you know? Um, Verse 15. Thank you. I have, um, you know, I've had, I've been, talking to myself about this for a long, long period of time. And it was recovery sisters and it was recovery partners and SLAA who told me 
that this is not your fault. Your addictions are not your fault. My mother was a speed freak. She was on amphetamines for 15 years. Um, I would go occasionally to the drugstore to get them for her. Uh, I was young. Uh, at that time, they were not under the control that they are today. And um, I would get them for her. And she, you know, she was like a tornado. She was definitely a whirlwind. And um, knowing when she was going to come at me, or when she was going to attack me became a skill, you know. It, it, I would have to walk out of the house and uh, wait for her to calm down. I'd walk out of the house for a couple hours and then come back um, because she was so volatile. When I was, I don't know, a freshman in high school, she gave me a, an amphetamine. She gave me one. Um, and I know it's not funny, but I took all the blinds off the windows, threw them in the bathtub, and washed all the blinds and rehung them. And then I took the Electrolux floor polisher and I scrubbed all the floors in the apartment. I was 13. And when my father asked her, what's going on? She told him and he just took another drink. He pretty much, I think because of her insanity on the amphetamines, he began to drink her away. And in that way, you know, he began to disappear and he passed away when he was 56 from alcoholism. So it took some convincing by recovery partners to tell me that, you know, my addictions were not my fault. You know, I was given beer I was given whiskey in my coffee. I was given amphetamines you know, when I was a child. And this was normal, actually, to them. This was not a um, abnormal situation to them. Um, and I thought this was normal for everybody else as well. Uh, and I was very surprised when I got to high school that it actually wasn't. Where I'm at today is that I have become a friend to the anorexic and a friend to the addict. My therapist had recommended that I try that because I can wake up in the middle of the night still with that low level of anxiety that the PTSD affords you and not be able to fall back to sleep. But with a new strategy of telling the anorexic that I thank her for protecting me from men who were inappropriate 
who meant from men who were, or even women who were the same as the people that I had grown up with. I had to thank the anorexic who happens to be my little girl because that's when she started and thank her for protecting me from harm and from people who that little girl didn't like. I have also become friends with the addict and my therapist had recommended that I do that, but do not let the addict have free reign. You must let her reside behind a fence or something like that. So I thought about it, you know, and, and I really did thank the addict for also protecting me in certain life situations for leveling me out when the PTSD was raging, you know, and I didn't know it. I had to thank the addict actually for protecting me and saving my life in a situation where, you know, I met a, an, an event that would have caused a physical death to me. And it was the addict who pulled me out of that. You know, and I had to thank her for that. And I had to, I, I tell both of them that I love them both. And that my addict, in contrast to the anorexic, my addict has the strength of a horse. So I have created a stable for my addict. And when she wants me to go off into my fantasy or do something else that takes me away from being in the present. I take my horse by the reins and I gently put her back in the stable and I put her in the stall and I close the gate and she has a blanket. If she gets cold, she has enough food, she has enough water. And if there are droppings, you know, if there are things in the stall that I need to clean out, well, figuratively, that's still me picking up the pieces. Because the more program I have, the more that comes out. And the more program I have, the more pieces I can pick up about myself. And the droppings or, you know, the stuff that I don't want, I can shovel it away. You know, I can sweep it out and I can get rid of it. And so those parts of me that I used to put myself down for, I now have become friends with. And if they were ugly to me at one time in my life, that now they are beautiful and these parts of me are beautiful and I've made friends with myself. I feel that when I do that, when I tell my addict or my anorexic how much I love and care for them and how much I appreciate and am in gratitude towards them, I get a feeling of being 
for the first time a sense of the middle, a sense of that, that sense of, I don't know if it's moderation, maybe in another program it's called, you know, um, oh, what's it called? Sobriety, uh, you know, uh, freedom. But I have that sense of how it feels like to be in the middle. And that's a new feeling for me. It's a new sense of safety. It's a new sense of well, just happy, joyous, and free, but on a much deeper, deeper level. This is a very deep, deep program, and I'm willing to go as deep as I need to go to understand that to be intimate with others. I'm ready to and willing to be intimate with myself. And that goes very, very deep because once I can be intimate with myself, then I can be intimate with my higher power and then I can be intimate with others. And that's the progression that I feel. I feel that the violence embedded in me has contributed to my anorexia because on a subconscious level, I've been afraid to be with anybody else for fear of what I might do as well. My brother is capable of violence. My sister is capable of violence. And I probably am as well. But with the deep, deep work that I'm doing, I'm getting to the root of how I can become aware of that and manage that with my therapist so that I may cultivate even deeper intimacy with myself and even deeper intimacy with my higher power and then with others. Reaching out to women as friends and then reaching out even to siblings and children, child, and then perhaps to members of the opposite sex. Thank you. I, um, my sponsor is here this evening and she is Pamela M. And I wanted to screen share this poem or passage that she gave to me. Can you see that? It's one of the most beautiful things I have ever received from anyone. And I think it speaks to whatever it is that I've been talking about tonight. I mean, when I came to SLAA a year ago, you know, I have to thank so many people. I have to thank the person who introduced me to Nettie. You know, I have to thank Nettie for introducing me to SLAA. I have to thank Pamela M for volunteering to be my sponsor after, you know, being desperate for a sponsor, I was. I mean, I'm desperate for recovery at this point. 
and um, that's really all I have. Um, I, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to share about myself, but what better safe place to be intimate with others than to tell your story in an SLAA meeting, particularly a women's only meeting, um, where um, I feel free of judgment and free of rejection, you know, which I haven't felt in the past. And that's that's all. Did you all. read it before you go? You want me to read it? Uh-huh. Sure. Okay. One of the most important things we will ever say to ourselves is, I love you, I've got you, and I'm not going anywhere. It took me many years to be able to say these words and actually believe them. Our childhood wounds can run deep, and when our core perceptions of safety and love are challenged at a young age, it can feel like a very long road to recovery. I like to think of recovery through the lens of healing trauma as an opportunity to recover parts of ourselves that were lost along the way. As we learn to reclaim these lost parts of ourselves, we begin to understand what wholeness feels like from the inside out. Our bodies and nervous systems begin to grasp what true safety feels like. We learn to show up and care for ourselves in ways we never received. I promised myself I wouldn't do this. We welcome ourselves home piece by piece. With consistent loving and attuned presence, we create a new baseline of well-being for ourselves. One day we realize that nothing will ever get in the way of our love and devotion to ourselves and our fundamental well-being. And no matter what happens, We've always got ourselves. Sandra Burchard. Well, that's it. So thank you very much. That's it for this month's speaker meeting. Stay tuned to Sober Sisters Talk for next month's speaker. Thank you.